Go ahead and open your Bibles to the 11th chapter of John. This is our, I believe, our fourth week in this chapter. And this is the story, if you recall, of Lazarus and his death. And last week we looked at his resurrection with the called out of the grave by the voice of Jesus, the voice of life. And we're going to finish the chapter today, but we're not quite done with this story because there's a little bit more that happens in chapter 12 as a result of Jesus uh, raising this man from the dead. So we're going to start in, in verse 45 of chapter 11, and I'll read through verse 57. Read along with me. <clears throat> Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the conspiracy against life, and this is God's word. All right. One of my favorite things about John as a writer is how much irony he uses. He loves irony, and irony is is fun. It's not always easy to understand or easy to see, but when we encounter it, it's definitely one of the most persuasive and meaningful ways of communicating. Um, and, and his gospel is shot through with irony. Um, and I'm going to try to do justice to the irony in this passage because the way that he tells his eyewitness story, especially this part of it, is just full. It's full. Of irony. It's very ironic. And people are always thinking that they understand Jesus and what's happening and understand themselves and their nation and their situation and where they are in history. But there's always so much more happening than they realize. And that is the source of irony that looking in from the outside, we can see more than they did in the moment. And that's what creates that spark, that meaning there. And we're going to look at what I believe is, is probably the climax of, of the irony in, in the Gospel of John, right here, specifically in this high priestly prophecy 
that's very curious because it sounds like the gospel, but we know something's wrong and we'll see what that is. It's very ironic. So right off the bat, we, we find that Jesus has done something that's incredibly polarizing. Everything that Jesus did had this effect. It was polarizing. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, in verse 45, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So we see both a movement of faith toward Jesus, the many, and we see a movement of unbelief back towards Jerusalem which are the some who go back to the Pharisees and report on Jesus. And I think it's fascinating that the same event, the raising of Lazarus, could have such profound joy for Mary and Martha and their community, and yet at the same time yield such sharp enmity, right? Isn't that interesting? It's, it's like the plot thickens, and there are some who would rather stir up trouble than stay in Bethany and share in the joy of this family that's been made whole. It's really awful when you think about what they were turning their backs on to go and stir up, right? And so these are, these are people who carry the news back to the religious elite in Jerusalem. And what's very interesting is the phrasing there in verse 45. It says that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Isn't that the same thing as preaching the gospel? That's kind of interesting, right? You would think that if they went back with the news of what Jesus had done, what effect would it have? Well, we see the effect that it has. And so what I suggest to you is that there is a difference. There is actually a difference between preaching the gospel and sensationalizing Jesus, which is what they're doing here. There's a bunch of Proverbs about this that can kind of help us understand what's going on. For example, Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 26, 17, whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. And you can contrast all of those with Proverbs 25, 25. It says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. So one is, when you, when you come and tell people what Jesus has done, that is preaching the gospel. But if you report on Jesus, if you sensationalize Jesus, it will not have the same effect. You will be stirring up strife. And I want to say one more word, too, about these, these people who seem to be tattling on Jesus. And that is <clears throat> just that the facts are wasted on those who don't want to believe. So this has come up quite a few times already in the Gospel of John, and I'll, and I'll just touch on it briefly. Um, the sum, sum here were people who plainly saw, really saw a dead man walk out of his tomb. Let that sink in. They really saw it with everyone else. They had seen what everyone else saw. So how can we explain the difference between their reaction and the reaction of the many who believed? So here's the truth. There's not enough evidence in the world to convince somebody who's already made up their mind to deny Jesus. 
And this is for us too. This is for the skeptics in our day. There's a lot of people out there who like to say, ah, if, if God would just prove it to me, then I believe. You ever heard that one? If he would just convince me. But they're fooling themselves. They're not open to the facts at all. And the proof is right here. It's right in the book. And there's so much that's historically indisputable, so much more that makes perfect sense to our hearts if we'll just listen. Yet you always have people standing around saying, I'm not convinced. And that is the type of hard heart uh, that sees a man being raised from the dead as just the next move in a chess match between Jesus and Jerusalem, which is how they seem to interpret this thing. It's astounding. I mean, if you saw a man raised from the dead, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, the guys in Jerusalem need to hear about this. You would, you would stay, wouldn't you? You would stay with the one who did that. You would want to get to know him. You would want to stay near him. So the next thing that we see here is the reaction to this news by those men who already hate Jesus. This is in verse 47. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? We'll look a little bit more closely at their, their concerns there. But it's really interesting, the, uh, the wording, the wording in the Greek here. It says, literally, the chief priests and the Pharisees synagogued the Sanhedrin. So synagogue is just, it's a gathering. They called together, they gathered the Sanhedrin. What was the Sanhedrin? So in case you don't know or need a refresher, the Sanhedrin originally were the 70 men that Moses gathered to help him lead the people of Israel. Do you remember that? Sanhedrin, 70. Um, in this day, it was, a, it was a council of the most powerful men in Israel. It served as a sort of like, you know, we have three branches of government in the United States. It was all three of those, judicial, legislative, executive, had all of this authority over the Jewish people. And at this time, importantly, it was firmly under Roman oversight. So the Romans decided who would be the high priest. It didn't have anything to do with, with, with God's decision or God's will. It had to do with who would cooperate the best with the Romans. And as an aside, Caiaphas, in the first century, he spent 18 years as the high priest that was the longest tenure of any high priest. Right before him, there, were, there was a new high priest every year before Caiaphas. And it just means that he was the most cooperative with Rome. That's what that means. So, so when we hear that they gathered the council in verse 47, that's, that's key. Don't skip over that, okay? So this means that they called an official Assembly, this is like calling the legislature together, right? They call them to order. And this is different than all previous opposition to Jesus. This is a new chapter in their war against Christ. So here is gathered something like the Supreme Court of Israel. And by the time their plan is made official and sealed in verse 53, it's not only a faction of the elite, but the entire governing body of Israel that's now implicated in this conspiracy. Do you see how important it is 
what's going on here. They gathered the council in response to the news that Jesus has raised a dead man. This is a crisis. This is getting out of hand. We have to do something. So let's look. Let's look at their words here. What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, no. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here's the thing. It starts out, it starts out on an appropriate and, a, and with the right question. What are we to do? Right? What are we to do? That's the right question to ask yourself when you're confronted with Jesus in this way. But then everything after that goes wrong. They say, for this man performs many signs. Yes, he does. You've seen it now. You can't deny it. He's not playing tricks. This isn't magic. This is real. So what does this require of you? So for this man performs many signs, to acknowledge that should reasonably make you search yourself. What's my response to a man who does many signs like this? So what does this require of you, O Pharisee? What is the reasonable response to the power of Jesus? And it's interesting that they don't, at this point, they're, they're past questioning the legitimacy or the authenticity of what Jesus has done and is doing, but they just consider it a, a growing problem. It's just a problem for them to solve. And the next thing they say also is a mistake in their thinking. If we let him go on like this, I'm sorry. Do you think you could stop Jesus? <laughs> You're not letting Jesus do anything. He's doing what he wants at this point, at every point. Then they say, everyone will believe in him. And now, I mean, it's, it's funny because, yes, <laughs> the faith in this man has spread around the world at this point in history, 2,000 years later. But think about where they stood then. They stood in a position where they really did think that they could stop people from believing in Jesus. And that's really something when you think about it. And that means that they've not, by, by putting it this way, they, they've not only become the enemies of Jesus, they've become the enemies of their own people. And the whole world, really. Because they're not only refusing to submit themselves, but they're plotting and how they can obstruct the faith of other people. This is a big deal. And then finally it says, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they're concerned first and foremost for their own status. And secondarily, for what, for what little political independence Israel has at this point, which wasn't much, right? They're already oppressed and occupied by Rome, and they're saying, ah, it could get worse. But something else is happening right here in this passage. Something else is taking shape, which is this. And you see it there again in verse 47. Who gathered the council? Look at it. Who, ga who gathered the council? Say, someone say it. Pharisees and the chief priests. Pharisees and the chief priests. From this point on, the plot against Jesus will be led by priests. 
Up until now, this is, the, this is the 11th hour. This is the very end of the story. Up until now, the Pharisees have been, have been the primary thorn in Jesus's side, right? They've been the ones confronting him, opposing him. They've been the ones reacting violently against him when he said something they didn't like. But it's significant here because if you look closely in the Gospel of John and all three of the Synoptic Gospels, the actual conspiracy, the organized effort to put Jesus to death was led by priests. It's led by priests. And the chief priests that are mentioned here, they're mostly Sadducees belonging uh, to the extended family of the high priest. And the way that Caiaphas talks, scholars have told us, he said, you know nothing at all. Well, that was characteristic of the sort of blunt and mean and angry way that Sadducees conducted dialogue. So he's a Sadducee. Most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. There was a small minority who were Pharisees. But from this point on, it will be priests moving against Jesus. And this, this brings up another interesting piece of context because you can't, you can't really talk about the priesthood without talking about the temple. So let me give you a brief overview of the history of the temple and why that's so important in, the, in everything that's happening here between Jesus and these, this religious elite. This is, on, this is on your sermon notes as well on the second Second side, there's bullet points if you want to remember the dates and, and the outline. But very quickly, um, you should know that, uh, that when they say the Romans will come, away, come and take away both our place and our nation, that word place in verse 48, it can refer in Jewish literature to the Lord, God himself, uh, their relationship with God, basically. It can also refer to the promised land, the whole land, the country. It could refer more specifically to Jerusalem, and it can very, very specifically refer to the temple. So you can see how the temple is the heart of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's the heart of the promised land. So at the very center of Jewish, of Jewish identity is the temple. And these men are priests, and so everything they think about revolves around the temple. And here's the history of the temple. It's been almost exactly a thousand years at this point, by the way, since the first temple was built. We're about 32 or 33 years AD. And the original temple was built by Solomon in 957 BC, almost a thousand years earlier. The temple lasted about 350 years, that first temple, until the Babylonians looted it and destroyed it in the year, around the year 600 BC. That should be very familiar. We know that story. That's when the Jews went into exile. They were sent back, though, by a Persian king, Cyrus, and they were allowed to, they were allowed to rebuild their temple and their city walls, and that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about in the Old Testament. And the second temple, the so-called second temple, it was finished in 515 BC. It was a fairly modest structure. I mean, these these people were not nearly as wealthy or well-resourced well as Solomon. So it was pretty modest, but it seems to have been blessed by God. And it was certainly used for several centuries by faithful Israelites who had come back from, Israel, from um, exile in Babylon. But the ark was never returned. 
okay? So in, in 167 BC, we talked a couple weeks ago about this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian king. He looted and desecrated the second temple. And then, um, then it, the temple was restored. That's the story of the Maccabees. And then for about 30 years before the birth of Christ, Herod, King Herod, overhauled the second temple into something that's just magnificent and glorious, this complex that was beautiful and impressive and they took pride in. So at this point, they felt like they had, they had been restored to some amount of pride in their temple. It mattered to them. They were worshiping there again. Do you see? So the, the struggle for Israel to keep its temple... You might say it's a drama that's been playing out for a thousand years back and forth. It's been, it's been desecrated and, and it's been destroyed once, desecrated twice, right? So when the Sanhedrin says that they may lose their place, they're not being hyperbolic. They're saying, they're, they're saying that for a third time, they may witness, they are at risk of witnessing the desolation of this building without which they just couldn't worship. That's what's at stake in their hearts. That's what's at stake. And it's not nothing. It was a real concern. We should take it seriously with them to understand at least where they're coming from. Now, so that's the, that's the context of all of this. Now let's look, let's look at this moment with Caiaphas, the high priest, and he says something here, and then John comments on what he says. And all of it together seems, seems kind of funny. Starting in verse 49, he says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this is John, and he's commenting. He's telling us something. He's cueing us into something that, that he knew, that, but... It's not what Caiaphas said here. In verse 51, John writes that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what's happening here? Is this a legitimate prophecy? Isn't this man evil? Could he legitimately prophesy something like that? Yeah, I think so. And that's what we're going to look at as we move towards the end here. So first of all, when he says, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Anytime you hear the phrase, that one dies for many, you should think of the Day of Atonement. These guys are priests, right? The Day of Atonement was the one day every year when the sins of all of Israel, millions of people, were transferred to one animal whose blood was then shed to make atonement. That was the day of atonement, one for many. And then on the day of atonement, there was the ritual of the scapegoat. Does anyone remember that? Scapegoat? It's interesting that the word scapegoat in in English, still means a person who is blamed for the wrongdoings, mistakes, or faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency. And the word 
that's translated better in verse 50. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. It could also be translated expedient. So we're talking about a scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, if you want to look it up later, 16 verses 20 through 22, it describes the ceremony of the scapegoat where the high priest, Aaron, Aaron would put his head on the hand of this goat who wasn't to be sacrificed, but was actually to be sent out into the wilderness where they would probably just be eaten very quickly. And it was part of the Day of Atonement ritual. It, was, it happened on the same day that the sacrifices were going on inside the temple. So Caiaphas is talking about something they all understood, which is the idea that one could die for many. He's not coming out of left field with this. He's saying something that pulled on um, history going back 1,500 years in Israel. So I think we have to admit that it's a little bit disorienting to hear this man who's plotting against Jesus, seems to hate Jesus, hates what he's about, wants to stop him, come so close to articulating the gospel, right? Isn't that what's weird? He, he sounds like he knows what's going on. He really doesn't know what's going on. So there's several things wrong. I want to point out a few things that will kind of clarify, I think, what he's saying. First of all, on the Day of Atonement, when the scapegoat is being prepared, um, the, the priest, in, in the original case, it would have been Aaron, it's not like he would have felt any antagonism toward the goat, right? Um, in fact, we can probably imagine that he felt sympathy and gratitude for this, for this animal's sacrificial death as he's led away to be fed to the night predators out in the hills, right? He probably felt something more like sympathy and certainly gratitude, but not antagonism. Why would you hate the animal that, that is going off to do this? Secondly, and more importantly, crucially, it was the sins of the people that should have been on the mind of the high priest when he was carrying out the process of transferring guilt to this innocent animal. He should have been thinking about the sins of his people. But in this case, with Caiaphas, it was not sin and repentance that he cared about. It was political expediency. This was political. And that's what he has in mind. He has politics in mind when he says, it's better for you that one man should die. You see that? The role of priests was nothing but sin. It had nothing to do with anything else but mediating the people's relationship with God by means of forgiveness and atonement. That was what the priesthood was about. And these men are sitting in a political seat saying, ah, we gotta put this guy to death because it'll be better for a party, basically. So second, that's the second and the major thing. Thirdly, as the high priest, Caiaphas is taking himself the role of placing his hands symbolically on the head of an innocent man, not a goat. So the scapegoat was a goat, not a person. So this was wrong on that level too, it was against the law. Finally, 
he was just wrong. He was wrong. What he meant was wrong, right? It, was, it wasn't going to be politically convenient for anybody that Jesus would die. Not at all. In fact, the opposite was true. Because within one generation, which is 40 years in the Bible, this group of men would lose all of its authority because of the conspiracy that was hatched at this meeting. Because of it. So he was wrong. What he meant was wrong. But he's persuasive, it seems. Or perhaps it was his prophecy that was persuasive. We don't know. Either way, we get a verdict in verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And they put the word out. When we look down to verse 57, they say, uh, the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Arrest him to kill him. So the word translated made plans there in verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It refers to the collective will of the authorities. This is like saying something like um, they resolve to kill Jesus. They make it official. They agree together. They put away their reservations and set themselves to the task of murdering this man. And we're meant to understand that this is a watershed moment. This is no return. This is not like, this is very different than all of the times when it says they picked up rocks to stone him in the heat of the moment because they were angry. That's not what this is. This is premeditated on the basis of the authority that these men had. This isn't just one or two zealots plotting in somebody's basement. This is organized, official condemnation by the highest authority in Israel. So it's happening now. They've reached a point of no return in their opposition to Jesus. And it's also very ironic to me that Jesus had just done something unheard of in the history of mankind's long struggle against death, which began with the fall in the garden, right? The occasion for this meeting, for this conspiracy, is that he had just raised a man from the dead. He struck a blow for life. He's rolled back the power of death, which seemed just so impenetrable. And he's raised a man who'd been dead for four days. So you might say that on the afternoon of this miracle, there is more life in the world because of Jesus. But what's their reaction? What do these religious leaders say in response? We've got to kill him for that. Amazing. If these leaders had any wisdom at all, if they had the heart of God at all, you'd think you'd have to imagine that they would say something like, wait, if this man can raise people from the dead, what might he be able to do for our country? What kind of life does he have to offer Israel? They They don't go there at all. Instead, the whole priesthood gathers to condemn the one in whom all of their power and their duties would be perfected. So don't miss this. This is the heart of this passage. Caiaphas, Caiaphas, this man, is the heir to Aaron's authority. 
Aaron, who lived 1,500 years before, Aaron, the brother of Moses, this man is standing in the position of Aaron. And in this moment, he's placing his hand of condemnation on the head of the true high priest who would end the ancient ritual of transferring guilt to others. He would take it on himself and finish the priestly work on the cross. That's what's happening here. Jesus is the high priest and he's the scapegoat. Do you see it? And he, take, he takes the priesthood away from these men right here by submitting to their conspiracy. And there's nothing more ironic that's ever happened than that. So when Caiaphas says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, follow me here. He's right. But what he thinks he means is wrong. And what God is doing through him in this moment is perfect. It's perfect. It's exactly, exactly what he always knew he was going to do. This is like, it's like an irony wrapped in an irony. That's why I love it so much. And the most pathetic one in all of this is the high priest himself because he doesn't understand what is happening. Do you see it? He's completely missing what's going on. So yeah, he prophesied something true, but unfortunately for him, it was a lot truer than he understood on a deeper level than he had ever seen. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know that they were destroying their own power. The rulers of this age, then, the temple age, they couldn't see inside of the, the, what Paul calls the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And so now they're doomed to pass away. So in a very real sense, in this council, in the midst of this Sanhedrin, Caiaphas transfers the priesthood to Jesus. And if you want to read more about that and everything that it means, go to the book of Hebrews, spend some time there. There's several chapters unpacking this idea that Jesus is the great high priest, the final high priest. And he's also the final scapegoat who would go out into the wilderness of the world and gather to himself the children of God who are scattered abroad, as it says there. And his death, what this means is that his death would be for the Gentiles too. And the final irony, of course, is that the temple would be destroyed just as they feared for the third and the final time in 70 AD as a direct result of these men's actions, this one decision, this one conversation, and what followed. So I want to say a final word, bring this home to us if, if, if I can. In one sense, I hope this is communicated this morning, in one sense, we should feel a lot of sympathy for these Jewish leaders in this passage. We should. Because when you think about it, what do they want? 
they want to protect their temple. They say that's what they're concerned about. I think they were legitimately concerned about it. It was at risk for this entire period of time. The Romans had the power. They couldn't be resisted. Anytime they wanted, they could come in and just tear that building down. They had built it. Herod had built it. And they could take it down. So these men want, they, they want something that we might look at and say it was, it was good. At least it wasn't sinful to want their temple to persist, right? This was the place where their people's worship was centered and grounded. And if they lost the temple, then they would lose God and they would lose their identity. That's what they were facing. At this point, they were just barely hanging on to the last threads of what it once meant to be an Israelite. They're perilously close to losing everything. And all of this is necessarily and intimately tied to their temple. So let this be a lesson to us. As long as we're resisting Jesus, we are more like these priests than we want to admit. Whatever your heart wants the most, whatever it is that you cherish above all else, whatever it is that you rely on for your identity, that's the exact thing, the precise thing that you're going to lose by rejecting Jesus, just like these men. Even if that thing is something good, like the temple, if it is getting between you and Jesus, it either has to die now or destroy you later. Because you remember what Jesus said about anything that's too precious to us to lose? Remember what he said? He said, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Let's pray.